Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial. We invite you to follow us on Twitter at MacArthur1880 or find the General Douglas MacArthur Memorial on Facebook. On July 14, 2018, the MacArthur Memorial hosted a lecture on the Battle of Chateau Thierry by TRADOC Deputy Chief Historian Steve McGeorge. Well, I thank everybody for the very kind welcome. Uh, it's always uh, fun to come here and uh, give a talk about things that I could talk about all day. Of course, I don't have all day. Uh, but I'm going to talk mostly about the events that began about this time, 100 years ago, 14th of July, forward to about the 6th of August. And in its time, people would have said this was the turning point of the war. Uh, events, uh, lots of other events happened afterwards, and of course we, we uh, ended the war with Americans and French involved in the Battle of the Meuse-Argonne, the longest uh, battle in American military history, 47 days continuously. And so people kind of forgot about the turning of the tide. So we'll begin talking right now about uh, July 1918. What's important about events 100 years ago? Uh, obviously the tricolor is at the top, and we have the division patches of the four major units, the 42nd Division, General Douglas MacArthur is the chief of staff and later the division commander, the 3rd Division, which takes on the moniker Rock of the Marne, uh, the 28th Division, which is involved, and this is a patch most folks won't uh, readily recognize. That's the 369th Infantry. It was an all-black New York National Guard unit. The four infantry regiments that were all-black in World War I were uh, seconded to the French because the Americans didn't want to deal with having French, uh, having black American combat troops. And the 369th is involved in some of the activities we'll talk about here. Of course, you have being a historian, you have to have a timeline. Uh, and why is 14 July, why is July 1918 important? Well, it's a crisis for the Allies, and particularly the French. Uh, the Germans begin their spring offensive, the Kaiserschlag, the Kaiser Battle, uh, on the 21st of March 1918. This is Germany's last gasp. They realize if they're going to finish the war, they've got to do it before the Americans can arrive in appreciable numbers, and while they still have the strength. They also have the benefit of having uh, Russia leave the war because of the Russian Revolution, so that frees up more soldiers from the Eastern Front to bring to the Western Front. <laughs> and in the spring, they hope to uh, take out uh, significantly uh, British forces, French forces, and force the Allies to a point where they can sue for peace and, and start developing a peace plan. Uh, the first major operation is Operation Michael. That's aimed at the British, and we'll see this on a map a little bit later. Followed by Operation Blucher York, aimed at the French. And both of those take considerable amounts of territory, prisoners, uh, materiel. They're very successful for the Germans. Uh, the Americans have arrived. The Americans enter the war. Of course, we declare war in April 1917. The first Americans begin to arrive in France of June 1917. Uh, but it's a slow process, and Americans are arriving and they are training. So in, by this period in the war, July 1918, virtually no American units have been involved in major combat. They've been in training either with the French or with British units. Uh, but we decide, the Americans decide, we've got to do something uh, that will make a splash. So the U.S. 1st Division takes uh, the village of Cantigny. Uh, this is a, the first real American offensive action. Uh, it is sort of a, uh, a propaganda action. Uh, it is the most, probably the most highly rehearsed uh, battle in American history. They make sure that this is this one we have to win. We've actually got to take this village and hold it. 
Uh, it was not particularly um, strategic per se, but it was an important, uh, an important message to send that American troops can effectively take offensive action, take a, a piece of terrain from the Germans, and then defend it. So you'll see on the map later where Cantini is. It's not really necessarily connected to things here, but uh, people sit up and take notice. The Americans, wow, they did a great job at Cantini. Well, they rehearsed the heck out of it uh, and put uh, an inordinate amount of resources into a very small operation. Um, getting a little bit closer to the to events on the Marne, and particularly at Shadow Theory, um, the Germans had begun an offensive that was aimed at crossing the Marne River at Shadow Theory. They're stopped mostly by the 7th Machine Gun Battalion. The American Army had organizations called Machine Gun Battalions. The 7th Machine Gun Battalion, 3rd Division, prevents German crossings of the Marne River at Chateau Thierry long enough for the French to blow the major bridge up and deny it to the Germans. And I'll show you an image of that a little bit later. Also on the north bank of the Marne, 2nd Division uh, goes into the Battle of Bella Wood to take Bella Wood. It becomes famous as a Marine Corps battle uh, because of censorship uh, rules. Censorship rules of the time said you couldn't mention units by name. And there was a, uh, an embedded reporter with the 2nd Division, Floyd Gibbons. Uh, he was wounded severely in the first day of the battle, the uh, 6th of June, but in the Marine Corps it's called Bella Wood Day. Lost an eye and, and had several other gunshot wounds. But he'd already begun working on a dispatch about the battle. And it got to one of his press editors in Paris and he said, regulations be damned, but we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna do this in honor of Floyd because he's probably gonna die. And his, uh, his, his uh, experience of Bella Wood, Floyd Gibbons' experience of Bella Wood was all at the Marine Corps, so they mentioned that the Marine Corps was taking Bella Wood. Well, the Marine Corps is a very small part of an army division, uh, one brigade, uh, two regiments of Marines, but uh, Bella Wood becomes famous as a, a Marine Corps battle. And the, in the opening, uh, the opening uh, phases of the Battle of Bella Wood, it's incredibly difficult for the Marines. Uh, we think of 6th of June as D-Day 1944. Well, in the Marine Corps, 6th of June means Bella Wood Day because on that day, when the American Marines uh, of, the, of their Marine Brigade uh, crossed the wheat field to get into Bella Wood, uh, the Marines took more casualties that day, 6th of June 1918, than in the entire history of the Marine Corps up to that time. Incredibly bloody. And so there's, uh, there's fighting in Bella Wood all the way through 26th June. It takes roughly 20 days and even a little bit more until uh, the Americans control Bella Wood. Again, it's, on the, it's west of Chateau Thierry and on the north side of the Marne River. Uh, the Germans try two more offensives, and I'll show those on the map, Gneisenau and Hammerschlag. Those are pretty much repulsed. Uh, and this leads uh, General Foch. General Foch is the Generalissimo, the, com the, the commander, supreme allied commander uh, of the Allies. Uh, to say, ah, it's a period of waiting. The Germans have one more push in mind, but as of 15 June, uh, it's, it's time for a period of waiting. 13 and 14 July, the French have a very highly developed intelligence service. They're very good at uh, interrogating prisoners. And in, uh, in both locations, we'll talk about two major locations here, the area right around Chateau Thierry and the area to the east around the city of Reims. Uh, but in both instances, German prisoners reveal between the, 12th, the 13th and the 14th of July that uh, the major, the last major German push, Marnschutz Reims, is going to begin at 10 minutes after midnight, so that it make it 10 minutes into the 15th of July. That's going to be H hour for this final German push. And the, the French know this, and they're able to disseminate that, which allows them to do some pretty good things. Uh, one of those is 
they've decided that we're going to start an allied artillery barrage early before they, the Germans kick off the offensive uh, and aim it at the German bridging sites and assembly areas on the north bank of the Marne and to some degree uh, further east in Reims. So uh, a counter barrage starts at uh, about 10 minutes earlier, disrupts lots of those German troops that are in their bridging sites and assembly areas. Initially, some of those German soldiers think, oh, that's our own barrage, but it started early. What's wrong? Is my watch wrong? And they realize, no, this is an Allied barrage coming in on us. Uh, by 16 July, in the Champagne area, Champagne region around Reims, the Germans are halted. I'll talk more about that as we get uh, further into it. Uh, by 17 July, uh, in Chateau Thierry, in the area of the Marne around Chateau Thierry, American patrols were able to cross to the north bank of the Marne. Uh, by 18 July, uh, it's over. The Germans have ceased offensive action. Uh, they are then on the defensive, really, for the rest of the war. And in this period here, the campaign dates that, uh, that go along with the Ein Marne offensive operations, 18 July to 6 August, the Allies pushed the Germans back all the way to the Vell River line. So, Chateau Thierry. This is the main bridge at Chateau Thierry. This is, was defended by the 7th Machine Gun Battalion of the 3rd Division. Uh, that's the south bank of the Marne, the south side of the city of Chateau Thierry. This is the north bank. Uh, the 7th Machine Gun Battalion holds off the Germans uh, long enough for the French to blow that bridge and deny it uh, to the Germans. So, uh, effectively, uh, the Germans are confined uh, to the north bank of the Marne until they actually begin Marne shoots uh, uh, offensive, Marne shoots reams on uh, 14 July, 15 July. So here are the two uh, Allied commanders of note, Marshal Foch and John J. Pershing, uh, both interesting characters in their own right and worthy of a little time to talk about who they are and, and uh, what makes them the officers they are. Um, French and American relations in World War I are the subject of a, of a book, an older book now, by a, a guy named Robert Bruce. The book is A Fraternity of Arms, American and French, uh, the Americans and the French in the Great War. Um, his argument, Bruce's argument is that uh, of the Allies, the Americans considered themselves closest to the French. We really don't consider ourselves that close to the English. There's a huge population of Irish Americans that don't like the English worth a hoot. Uh, and we remember back to the American Revolution and uh, our, our adventures at, uh, at Yorktown and how we wouldn't have won the revolution without French assistance. So there's an awful lot of uh, uh, good arguments that, uh, you know, we didn't particularly get along with the British as well as you might think, that the French really are the major ally. But there's, there's a conflict, and as you see, General Pershing is not quite smiling. In fact, the only pictures of him smiling are when he's around women. Uh, he was, uh, he had some personal tragedies, which we'll talk about, but he, uh, he was really a ladies' man. Uh, he was for years, decades actually, considered America's most eligible bachelor. Uh, it's a tragic story, but there's a, a happy side to it. Uh, but he's unhappy. Why is he unhappy? He's unhappy because the Allies, the British and the French, both have been pressuring him since Americans began arriving, arriving in France to amalgamate American soldiers. And by amalgamation, they meant give us your machine gun troops, give us your infantry, maybe your artillery, and we will integrate those folks side by side with our army, and they will operate under our officers. And this, this is not going to fly with the American public and American senior leadership to include the Secretary of War. We had Secretaries of War then, not Secretaries of Defense. 
Secretary of War Newton D. Baker said, no, we're not going to do this. We, you will not buckle uh, to this demand for amalgamation. Americans will fight under an American command as independent American units. But it's a, uh, it's a cross that Pershing has to bear, uh, this incessant pressure from both the French uh, <coughs> and the British to amalgamate American soldiers. The French eventually relent, uh, and Pershing, to some degree, relents. Beginning about uh, March, at the very beginning of the German offensives, he realized, wow, this is really big. Uh, the Germans have advanced. We'll get to, when we get to the map, you'll see. The Germans have ad advanced to within about 50, 60 miles of Paris. Uh, French, the French government is uh, you know, in turmoil, uh, and so the Americans will allow American soldiers to be used with a couple of provisos. They will remain under American command, uh, at least to the brigade and regimental level. Uh, after that, at, uh, at higher levels, we allow the French to command. So all these operations that take place in the summer of 1918 are Americans um, at the highest levels being commanded by French general officers. And that's, uh, there's, there's some, good, some cases of good and bad uh, in, in how that works out. Marshal Foch is, is a, a military genius of his time. Um, He's unusual in the French army in that he's a devout Catholic. He has a brother who's a Jesuit priest. And the French government at that time is severely anti-clerical. Uh, Foch is discriminated against on the basis of his Catholicism for quite a while. He has to go into a major fight uh, when he's uh, uh, attempting to become the, com the commandant of their uh, war college, their equivalent of the war college. He eventually becomes the commandant of the war college. But uh, he, he surmounts all that. Uh, and he's considered the, the great French military thinker. Uh, he, uh, he presides, interestingly, presides over the, the German surrender in World War I at Compiègne. And after the surrender at Compiègne, of course, the rail car is turned into a little mini museum. There's a number of uh, uh, statues that are put up uh, all around the site in the Compiègne forest. And time goes on. And of course, in 1940, the Germans have defeated France. Well, where do they go to sign the French surrender of 1940? They go to Compiègne. Uh, and it's truly an in-your-face moment. Uh, and when they do that, then the Germans decide, oh, we'll figure this out. We'll make this really embarrassing. They tear down and blow up every statue and every piece of monument, including the original rail car. But they leave the statue of, of Marshal Foch to view the devastation. <laughs> So they don't tear down his statue. He gets to look at the devastation. Uh, after the war, those, those uh, monuments are rebuilt. The, uh, the, uh, the, the car, the railroad car is restored. Uh, and uh, that, that's the way that goes. Uh, talked a little bit about Pershing. Pershing is, uh, is no stranger to personal tragedy. The big personal tragedy in his life uh, is in 1915, he's assigned to duty at Fort Bliss, Texas, which is across the river from El Paso, or... Uh, whatever the Mexican town is, El Paso is the American side. But he's at Fort Bliss. His wife and family are residing at the city of San Francisco, and his quarters catch on fire. And his wife and three daughters uh, die uh, of smoke inhalation very quickly. Uh, the only surviving family member he has left after that is his, young, his son, Warren. So he's got one son, Warren, who survived. Uh, his family has, has died in the Presidio fire. As I said, he doggedly fights this uh, amalgamation push from both the British and the French, uh, and, and again, finally agrees uh, that this is really, truly uh, a time of crisis, and that uh, we're going to have to we're going to have to allow American soldiers to fight, even if it is under French high command. So I'll orient you to the map a little bit. Uh, Cantigny is over here. This is the uh, the American sort of symbolic 
battle to take the Battle of Cantigny. There's Paris. There's Chateau Thierry. This is the amount of uh, real estate taken by the, uh, by the first phase of the Kaiserschlacht against the British. All that territory taken. Tremendous losses to the British in guns, in men, prisoners, uh, casualties. This is the second large offensive, the, the Blucher-York offensive against the French, which takes in all this territory from the Ain River all the way up to the, to the Marne River here, Chateau Thierry, uh, and uh, that's, that's, this is a crisis. Between the two of these, this is a crisis. These areas here are the two smaller offensives which got repulsed, but this is the situation when, uh, when we come up to about 14 July. What does it look like? It looks this bad. Uh, the German commanders, Erich von Ludendorff, uh, in, his, in his general outfit, and the Kaiser's eldest son, Friedrich Wilhelm, the crown prince. Uh, both of them are senior leaders uh, in this operation. Ludendorff is kind of the genius behind the Kaiserschlacht. Uh, the crown prince has his own army. Uh, he says in his memoir, he survives the war in memoir, and later says well, the most difficult day was when I had to explain to dad that we'd lost the battle because the Kaiser came to see what hap was happening down here on about the 18th or 19th or 20th of July. The crown prince had to go to his father and say uh, it just didn't work. So we decide that we're going to have Americans uh, fighting under French command, and, and this works out uh, particularly well in some cases, not so well in others. And I'm going to go through... Uh, some of the reasons why. Uh, the third division, Rock of the, gains the nickname, the moniker Rock of the Marne. They use it to this day. Uh, originally, in the period, it was really only applied to one of the subordinate regiments, the 38th Infantry Regiment, commanded by this gentleman here with the great name of Ulysses Grant McAlexander. Uh, UG McAlexander commands the 38th Infantry. They are the furthest forward of the third division infantry regiments and they're fighting right along, the, right along the edges of the Marne River. And initially, when they said Rock of the Marne, they meant this man and his regiment. Uh, division commander is Joseph T. Dickman, and they're operating under, uh, under two French officers. The Army-level commander is General de Goot. The Corps-level, 36th Corps-level commander, is General Mondesir. And this is one of those cases where operating under the French uh, in this particular time and place is not working out very well. Why is it not working out very well? Well, um, General de Goot gives, uh, gives guidance, but it's, it's general guidance and it uh, kind of flip-flops. The French by this time, at least in terms of defensive strategy, had a very well-developed defensive doctrine called elastic defense which meant that you didn't put all your eggs in one basket up front, you developed multiple defensive lines, uh, manned at various strengths so that you could uh, attrit the enemy as they came towards you and, and stop them. And um, in the case of disposition of the third, uh, the third division, the Marne division, Rock of the Marne, uh, General de Goot said, well, that's our doctrine, but, mm, you know, there's some wiggle room. You might not really have to do this. Uh, his subordinate, the corps commander, Mondesir, tells Dickman, no. You will defend forward, this is in total opposition to their doctrine, you will defend forward with one foot in the river. Dickman thinks that's ridiculous. He says that's a recipe for failure. But again, he's operating under the French, so he has to at least listen or pretend to listen to General Mondesir. Uh, it gets a little bit more difficult because Dickman tells his subordinate commanders, 
Ulysses Grant McAlexander and the other really strenuously engaged regimental commander Ed, Edmund Butts uh, that you will, def you will deploy your troops as you see fit. So uh, they've got mixed guidance from the French. Dickman's not happy with the guidance he gets from Mondesir. Uh, he's convinced that uh, they're, they're avoiding their own doctrine and it's not going to work out very well. And in the event, <coughs> his two regimental commanders take different views of how to do things on the ground. Uh, these are some of the troops of the 3rd Division marching, marching into battle around Chateau Thierry. Uh, even for an army guy, this is a way too busy map to understand. <laughs> but this shows, the, uh, this shows the trace of the 3rd Division deployment along the Marne. The city of Chateau Thierry is off this direction, uh, and the 3rd Division has about 12 miles of responsibility along the trace of the river, just past, this is called the Jalgon Bend of the Marne River and they've got responsibility for the river's edge and all these lines back to here. And you see there's these successive lines, the army line, the woods line, uh, the aqueduct, there's the aqueduct line, the railroad line. Uh, those are more or less uh, in accordance with the French doctrine of the elastic defense. We're going to move to a, a little bit more understandable map, a little less detailed. What happens in the event is, uh, you can see this is uh, Hill 204, the city of Chateau Thierry, Hill 204, and we'll see that's a, an important uh, piece of real estate that we'll talk about a little bit later uh, on the north bank of the Marne River. Uh, 4th Infantry and 7th Infantry are the two regiments of the 3rd Division that aren't re necessarily that strenuously engaged in defending the Marne River line. The 30th under Butts and the 38th under McAlexander are. And these two guys take an entirely different idea, a different uh, approach to how to do this. Butts sets up his 30th Infantry in a number of uh, successive lines, far more in accordance with the French doctrine. McAlexander agrees, wait a minute, we can stop these guys right on the river's edge. So the 38th Infantry is really, truly on the river's edge uh, all along here, very, very close to the front, without much support in the rear. Uh, however, McAlexander uh, has the bright uh, idea, he's convinced that this 125th French division to his right might not stick when the Germans actually make the assault across the river. He's concerned the 125th division may decide to be elastic in defense and elastic themselves right towards the rear. So uh, McAlexander decides he's going to build alternate fighting positions. He builds trenches along the Sermelin Creek facing that direction in the event that the 125th French uh, division pulls back, which is what in effect happens. Uh, two other units that are here, these are the 28th Division, Pennsylvania National Guard, the 109th Infantry, a part of it, about half of the 109th Infantry and half of the 110th Infantry are to the right, and they get pushed back uh, by the Germans. The Germans actually do affect crossings. Uh, they begin this, they begin the operation uh, on time. Uh, they have the advantage, the Germans have an overwhelming advantage of artillery. They have about uh, two to one artillery advantage in heavy artillery. And both the French, uh, particularly the French, the Americans don't have that much experience, but French officers that experience the, uh, the preparatory German bombardment here on the south bank of the Marne uh, say that this is worse than anything that happened at the Battle of Verdun in 1916. They've never seen or heard this much uh, compressed artillery fire going into a relatively small space. Absolutely devastating. 
Um, in fa and in fact, it includes guns so large that uh, this bombardment here can be heard in Paris. It's shaking windows in Paris. Uh, so it's, it's, it is, in fact, devastating. Uh, the problem the Germans have, again, we knew that they were going to uh, kick off at about 10 minutes past the hour. We did some counter-battery fire on their crossing positions. That slowed them down a little bit. Uh, and once they actually got some of their troops across, they had been delayed so long that their, the shift in their artillery fire was going to be a rolling barrage that the troops would follow behind. Well, they'd been delayed so long, and they couldn't adjust that, that artillery plan, so the artillery plan outran the German troops. Uh, they were not able to keep up with their barrage, and their artillery was way ahead of them. Now, that's still causing damage to the Americans and the French, um, but the German troops that are following that artillery are not able to keep up. So Germans do get across, uh, do get across to the, the south side of the Marne, but again, as I said, by the 17th, uh, there's American patrols to the north side of the Marne. By the 18th, the Germans have basically pulled every living German off of the south side of the Marne River and onto the north and are back in defensive mode. Now here's, here's where uh, the situation where things are, are really great. Far better than uh, sort of these, these conflicts in, uh, in third division. This, of course, is the, uh, the 42nd Division patch. This is the 42nd Division commander, General Menaher, General Douglas MacArthur, who was uh, chief of staff and then later a brigade commander and then later division commander of the 42nd. They're operating east of Reims, the city of Reims, under General Garode. And uh, everybody falls in love with General Garod. They think this guy is the, the model general. They remind, he reminds them of the French uh, patriot Henry of Navarre. Uh, he has this blazing red beard. He's missing his right arm. Uh, people don't realize that at, the battle, at Gallipoli, the Gallipoli campaign in Dardanelles, there were French troops involved. He was a French commander at Gallipoli. He lost his right arm at about the shoulder, uh, and both of his legs were so badly damaged he could barely walk. Um, but he's, uh, he's commanding uh, the French Fourth Army. Uh, he's a graduate of the French Military Academy uh, Saint-Cyr, and he's a graduate of the class of 1890. The class of 1890 at Saint-Cyr uh, is the French equivalent of our West Point class of 1915, which is known as the class the stars fell on because the class of 1915 had more general officers come out of that class than any other class in West Point history. Well, in the French Army, it's the Saint-Cyr class of 1890, which eventually has 60 general officers uh, that went through Saint-Cyr in the class of 1890, and Garode's one of them. Uh, and of course, uh, when, he, when he graduates uh, in, in the French army at that time, when you graduated, if you want real high adventure and excitement, you join the colonial army. You want to fight out in the colonies somewhere. You don't want to be defending Paris. That's boring and dull. Uh, so he initially wants to go and fight uh, in the colonies. His father talks him out of it. He says, no, they'll turn you into a savage. You'll go, you'll go native, they'll turn you into savage, you've you got to stay. So he eventually uh, spends most of his career, uh, early career, uh, in France uh, properly, uh, not in the colonial army as he, as he thought uh, he really wanted to. Um, as they get to, into this period of waiting, uh, Garod uh, is the master of the elastic defense, and I've got a map that will show that later. He sets up a masterful, according to French doctrine, elastic defense, east of Reims, uh, the city of Reims, all the way uh, to a place called the Main de Massige, which is off my map, but you'll be able to see it. Uh, he's uh, out there with soldiers, uh, both French and American. He's, he's being seen, you know, and there he is, the guy with one arm hobbling around, you know. 
he sends out a, his general order of 7 July. Is, uh, he's a pretty blood-curdling guy. Uh, he sends out a, a general order to the 4th Army on the 7th of July, which in part says about the Germans, kill them, kill them in abundance until they've had enough. Uh, and he means it. Um, his first visit, <laughs> this is, this, I found this particularly, uh, and he wrote, he wrote lots. He wrote lots of uh, memoirs. He was so revered by the 42nd Division that later, after the war, they made him the honorary president of the 42nd Division Association, and he made multiple trips to the States uh, to, to participate. Um, but on, on his first visit to the 42nd Division headquarters, what do you think happens? His driver runs over an American soldier and breaks both his legs. And so uh, he, in, in his memoirs, uh, Garod says, oh, my God, what a kettle of fish. That's the first time i got to work with these guys. What do I do? The first guy, the first private I see, I kill one of their own. So, uh, the guy lived, Burnett, Private Burnett, 151st uh, Machine Gun Battalion, survived the war. But uh, General Garod's a little worried that things aren't going to get off, off to a, a peachy start if you run over the first American soldier you see. But uh, they, they get past that. They drive past that. There's some, some troops of the uh, Rainbow Division. Anybody know why it's called the Rainbow Division? All right, somebody knows. Why is it called the Rainbow Division? Okay. Uh, it's good. National Guard is composed of individual units from the National Guard of 26 of the 40, then 48 states. Um, the four infantry regiments are all entirely different. One is the old uh, New York Fighting 69th. It becomes the 165th Infantry. Uh, the 167th is the old 2nd uh, and 4th Alabama, deep south, the 167th. Uh, the 166th, these troops just happen to be from the 166th is the Ohio Regiment, Infantry Regiment, and the 168th is from Iowa. And there's a number of other small units from, from all the National Guard units. Um, they asked about, early on when they were forming the division, they asked, well, what do we do about these black National Guard units? And somebody said, well, black's not a color of the rainbow. So there were no black troops in the Rainbow Division. Um, this is the, uh, the map of uh, how Garod set up this defense, and it's, it's awesome. If you go this direction, uh, back this way, you'll go to the city of Reims. If you go off the map uh, this direction, you go to the main de Messige and further French lines. Uh, and this is what we mean by an elastic defense. The old front line uh, is just manned by some sentries. You put some sentries in there that have flare guns. And when they see the Germans coming, they pop a flare, and then everybody knows, ah, the Germans are coming. Again, they had just as, uh, Garode had good, uh, good intelligence. Uh, he used a code word. This is kind of an interesting little story. He used a code word to both uh, his French and subordinate American units, uh, on the 14th of July, 13th, 14th of July. And it was very simple. When you got a telephone or a radio transmission, they did have some, wireless radio then, mostly it was telephones. Um, when you got the radio transmission, Francois 571. Francois 571 meant the Germans are coming. It's imminent. It's going to happen any moment now. So uh, you've got this, uh, this, this first early warning line, the old front line. Uh, these are strong points of the intermediate position, which is really the main line. Uh, those are French units, and these are intermixed with American units. This is Company K and G of the 165th the old Fighting 69th New York, uh, E-165, 166 from Ohio, Company K, a French unit, American unit, French unit, American unit. Uh, there's one sacrifice post, and these sacrifice posts were mostly held by the French. Those soldiers were, were uh, in the French army, were volunteers, and they were told, you will stay here until you are killed or captured, and you're more likely to be killed than captured. 
what happened here, the sacrifice post from the American uh, 42nd Division is uh, a, a platoon or a portional platoon of Company I, 166th Infantry. Uh, every man in that platoon, and the, uh, it's uh, 48, about 50 guys, 50, 60 guys, uh, every man in that uh, was either killed or captured. Uh, the Lieutenant Cullen was captured and then became a guest of the Kaiser and was later repatriated, came back and rejoined the division while they were in the Army of Occupation. But uh, that entire platoon ceased to exist as, as a sacrifice post. Um, there's the little, little small town of Saint-Hilaire-le-Grand. Um, there's Fort Saint-Hilaire. It's a, a previous uh, pre-war fort. And then you have the second position. This is The second position is, wow, if things go really bad, we'll fight them in the second position. These are all strong points. Uh, a man by 42nd guys have French code names, Verdun, Rouen, Douaumont, Grenoble, uh, Alger, Nancy, Niger, Artin, Tunis. So those are the, uh, those are the main fighting positions if the Germans aren't stopped here. So what happens in, what happens in the, the region of the Reims here? Um, 369th, as I mentioned, is further to the east out at Maine de Massige. Uh, they actually are not that heavily engaged, but the interesting factoid uh, thing that happens there, uh, they're out there at the Maine de Massige. Uh, they get the word. They get the same code word everybody else does. Francois 571, the Germans are coming. It's going to happen. Um, they receive some bombardment, but no Germans ever appear uh, far to the east off at the Maine de Massige. So the sections, uh, the companies of the 369th that were there, uh, move forward about five kilometers to assist a French unit and are, are instrumental in uh, that French unit uh, that was under direct attack from German infantry. Uh, they were there to repel those guys. Um, they only took the 369th, the entire 369th in the operation only took a handful of casualties, six or seven or eight casualties. But they're an important six or seven or eight casualties because uh, about five guys that were, were basically obliterated that was witnessed by a guy named Horace Pippin. Anybody know who Horace Pippin is? Horace Pippin uh, was a self-taught folk artist. He was a member. He was a corporal in the 369th. Uh, he started doing uh, art based on his war experience as a therapy for his, basically today we'd call it his PTSD. Uh, he produced a body of works, about 140 works. They weren't all military. But uh, yeah, Horace Pippin's uh, experience with the 369th was seeing five of his buddies get blown up, and he did a painting of that. Uh, the shelling, it's about the shelling at Maine de Massage. Um, and he's been, you know, Horace Pippen for years was kind of an unknown guy. He started uh, being exhibited in certain art circles in the 1940s, but he's, he's now taken on a, a lot more importance uh, as a self-taught uh, artist and a self-taught veteran artist who's using art as therapy for his uh, war experience. So it works out particularly well here for uh, General Garod and the 42nd Division. The, the Germans make... Uh, between on the 15th and into the 16th, about seven separate assaults on these positions, and not one of those penetrates so that they have to fight in this second position line. They're all defeated up here in the intermediate position line. In some cases, there's hand-to-hand -hand combat, but they are defeated uh, soundly. And the Germans, cease, Germans actually cease all offensive action uh, on the Reims on the Reims part of the front earlier than anywhere else. The uh, the battle participation credit for the 42nd only cre credits them with uh, uh, defensive operations through the 17th, nothing on the 18th because the Germans had already stopped. <coughs> um, we'll talk about some, some other French commanders and, and their relationship. Again, 
It's uh, in some cases a mixed bag. The best, uh, the best personality fit and match is Garode and the troops of the 42nd. Americans love serving under Garode. Um, this is uh, Philippe Patin. Patin moves up uh, after, after General Nivelle uh, doesn't do very well, and there's some mutinies. Uh, some people call them collective indiscipline, not mutinies, in the French army. Uh, Patin is called in to, to, to correct that, and he does that by liberalizing leave policies and assuring soldiers that they won't, their lives won't be wasted, and uh, does pretty well in, in court of, sort of uh, reforming the French army's morale uh, for 1918. Uh, General de Goot, we talked about before. Uh, Americans are serving under under de Goot for a number of uh, in a number of places. Uh, not particularly happy with him. Certainly not happy with his his corps commander, his subordinate corps commander Mondesir, which Third uh, Division officers called him a, 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 a nervous Nelly, a nervous old lady, uh, and a micromanager to boot. And his chief of staff uh, gained the nickname Le Ours, which is a bear, the bear, and. Uh, Dickman's chief of staff, Kelton, said, I can't even deal with this guy. I'm not talking to another Frenchman as long as I live. Don't want to, don't want to do it. Uh, but they, they have to put up with it, at least for the summer of 1918. Ah, this character. So Americans are fighting as, in, as we go into this uh, offensive operation, and I'll show you a slide later that shows how the offensive goes. Uh, Americans are fighting in the offensive operation, the first and second divisions, particularly under General Charles Mangin. Mangin. Um, this guy's hyper-aggressive. I mean, he's got, he's got hyper-aggressive personality disorder. He's Alsatian first, so that means he hates Germans more than any other Frenchman. He hates Germans with a bleeding passion. Mangin is, uh, uh, takes on, gets the, the unfortunate nickname, I guess, of the Butcher. And he mostly gets that because he made a comment. This is before generals had really good PR guys. Uh, he made a comment in public about, you know, in war, no matter what you do, you lose a lot of guys. So people took that to mean, oh, he doesn't care very much about his soldiers. Uh, in the French army, there was a, a saying, uh, if you belong, if you were one of the armies uh, under Mongin's command, you could say, je suis de Mongin, which means, you know, I might not be here next week. Uh, this guy's really hard to work for. Uh, he's notable for another, a number of other reasons. When he, he, I'll show you on the map later. He sandwiches uh, in the push uh, the west, from the west to the east into the, uh, into the, the bulge created by the German offensives. He sandwiches the first and second American divisions with the French colonial division in the middle, which includes the French Foreign Legion, French Senegalese Tirolures, uh, a lot of uh, very, very brutal soldiers. Uh, and he does that, I think, intentionally. He wants to show Americans, hey, I've got some French, I got some French, uh, some French Africans that can do some, some serious damage on Germans. In fact, he'd written a book in 1910 called La Force Noire. And he argued in La Force Noire that, uh, that French national defense would be a lot better off if we could include more of our French colonial, uh, subjects in defending France. Not just have them operate out in the colonies, but get some of these, let's get some of these Senegalese and these West Africans and Annamese and some of these others, and let's use these guys to better advantage. So he's making the argument that uh, French colonial uh, soldiers, particularly African French colonial soldiers, uh, could do a, do a lot more to defend France. He starts that as early as 1910. And, and in, in, in even more, I hate Germans in your facism, uh, he's in charge of the German, uh, the French occupation of the Rhineland after the armistice. Guess what troops he pulls in to run the Rhineland? French colonials and Senegalese. Uh, and he rubs their face in it. And uh, at one point, the local Germans are coming to him and say, hey, there's way too many German girls getting pregnant here. 
you've got to do something about these guys. And his answer was, your German girls are none too good for my Senegalese. Uh, this, this is a graphic that will show you uh, the extent of, of uh, the operations. Again, whoop, back. Uh, first Division, 2nd Division, under French 10th Army from Montjean, commanded by Montjean, with the French Colonial Division in between. Uh, they push in and take uh, Soissons. Uh, 4th Division here moves in, uh, takes a lot of uh, ground there. There's Bello Wood. Uh, here's Chateau Thierry. And you can see, this was the, the point of German occupation uh, on Bastille Day, 14 July. And by 31 August, actually a little earlier, uh, the, the combined Allied and French, uh, French and American forces have pushed the Germans all the way back to this line. And that's a logical place to stop. Uh, Foch realizes uh, if we push any further, it's not going to gain us anything. Uh, we, can, we can do what we need to do and let the Germans uh, retain that line more or less along the Vell River. It's not necessarily that important to clear them out any further, but we've cleared all this territory. Uh, City of Reims is off in this direction. Uh, Chateau Thierry's over here, or Chateau Thierry's right there. Uh, but this is, uh, this is what Americans uh, and the French spent the summer of 1918 doing. Uh, it's, um, it's not really well understood. Uh, there's lots of Lots of action in lots of places. Uh, it occurs under French command. And when you look at uh, American military history, it's like, ah, it's lots of really confusing. Lots of stuff goes on in the summer of 1918. Well, yeah, it is confusing. Lots of units, uh, in some cases, being employed in very small uh, uh, organizational packages. The 4th Division, uh, U.S. 4th Division here, uh, everybody goes in and fights as a regiment or part of a regiment. In Soissons, the 1st and 2nd Divisions actually operated more like American divisions under Montjean. 3rd uh, Division eventually uh, is operating pretty much as a division, and 42nd as well. This comes at a, a great cost in American lives. Uh, these are some of the American dead right on the Marne River at Maisy. Uh, it's very, very difficult. I've been there, literally been on the ground. In 1938, the U.S. Army wrote a guidebook called American Armies and Battlefields in Europe. In 1938, you could actually go and find fighting positions like this along the Marne. Obviously, the, the dead had been buried and the battlefield had been policed up. Uh, as of about uh, five years ago, I talked to a local Frenchman and he said, you as an American will never be able to find these places in the summer when everything's greened up and there's lots of leaves. Maybe in the dead of winter you might. Uh, it is very difficult throughout the Marne region to tell that there was ever much fighting there. If you go to the Meuse-Argonne, it's a different story. It's very, very evident because there's lots of an unrepaired battlefield, uh, as it were. Uh, talking about heroes of the Marne, there's, uh, there's any number of heroes of the Marne. There becomes a, a fight, uh, sort of a battle of the memoirs uh, between the, those that favor McAlexander in the 3rd Division and say, oh, it was Ulysses Grant McAlexander in the 38th Infantry. They're the rock of the Marne. General uh, Colonel Butts uh, writes his own version of the history and says, no, you know, the 38th guy's really didn't do it. It was really the 30th, so there's a, some tension there between the two of them. And again, by, by this point in time in our history, we, we generally now refer to the entire 3rd Infantry Division as the Rock of the Marne Division. But this gentleman here is uh, the commander of the furthest forward of the 38th Infantry Companies, Company G, 38th Infantry. That's Jesse Walton Wooldridge. Uh, he received, uh, he's wearing it there, the Distinguished Service Cross. Uh, didn't receive a Medal of Honor, but received the Distinguished Service Cross. And if you can see over here, uh, in the American Army in World War I, on your right sleeve, you wore those lower chevrons on the right sleeve for wounded in action. He was wounded in action three times. Uh, 
and I believe two of those times were right there on the Marne. Um, his Distinguished Service Cross uh, was awarded for uh, leading uh, a counterattack on the 15th of July, letter counterattack uh, in which uh, his company numbered 180 men when he started. By the end of the day, he only had 51 men that were untouched. He himself was wounded and went on, uh, you know, went on to sort of fame and glory as uh, Jesse Walton Wooldridge, the guy that was on the tip of the spear of the 38th Infantry, uh, their most forward company. This is the Hill 204 Monument. Uh, it's the largest American monument built by the American Battle Monuments Commission to commemorate World War I activities uh, overseas. Uh, it was erected and um, dedicated in 1937, just on the eve of World War II. Um, it's on Hill 204, and one of my earlier maps you can see where Hill 204 is. It's about, it's on the north bank of the Marne on a hill, Hill 204, which was fought over for quite a while in June and July of 1918. It's a, it's an amazing, uh, an amazing monument, uh, in itself, and for the centennial, the American Battle Monuments Commission has turned this basement space below the monument into a visitor center like a like our national park visitor centers, where there's some good displays and graphics, some artifacts, uh, not a full-up museum, but a, a really good uh, visitor orientation space. So that's the newest of the uh, of the visitor orientation spaces that the, the National Park Service has built there at Hill 204. Hill 204 is, is the Hill 204 monument is sort of interesting because uh, when it was initially uh, it went through some name changes. When it was initially built, it was referred to as the Chateau Thierry American Monument. And then later, uh, it was also, also became known as the Ein Marne uh, American Memorial. Uh, and the French refer to it as the American Memorial on Hill 204. So it's got about, about three different names. Uh, but it's an awesome, an awesome location. Uh, one of the things they have there uh, is in, in the very front there, there's a, a compass rose inlaid into the into the floor, and it shows the azimuth and the directions to everything you can see. So you can see that's Chateau Thierry, that's this, that's Dormont. There's you know, it gives you a really great view view viewpoint uh, to see the battlefields uh, right along the Marne from Chateau Thierry uh, out uh, about halfway to to Reims. So when it's all done, the Champagne Marne defensive and the Aisne Marne uh, Champagne Marne. Champagne Marne defensive and the Ain Marne offensive operations. Uh, about 270,000 Americans uh, engaged in that entire time frame. That takes us from 14 July up to about the 6th of August, depending on when you pick the, the cutoff date. Uh, Americans from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 26th Division, New England National Guard, 28th Division, uh, Pennsylvania National Guard, 32nd, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, mostly National Guard. Uh, the 42nd Division, which is the Rainbow Division, has a little bit of everybody. Uh, and the 369th Infantry, the, the Harlem Hellfighters, all those units engaged and received campaign credit for these two campaigns. Uh, total American casualties uh, in dead and wounded, about uh, 39,672. Vice total allied casualties in that time frame, 95,165. You do the math, that comes out to about 41% of the total Allied casualties in this three weeks are Americans. Uh, why is that? Well, it's because for most of these, for most of these units, uh, this is the first major combat they've been involved in. People are impetuous. People take risks that nobody else would have taken. 
Uh, the French in particular are going, wow, these guys act just like we did in 1914. And the Germans are saying the same thing. These guys are, when? If we, we would have been a fair match for these guys in 1914, uh, you know, that these, they're, they're, they're crazy. I mean, they're, they're doing stuff that nobody else will do. Uh, the losses are particularly high amongst junior officers that are trying to lead their men in combat. So the junior officer losses in infantry regiments are incredibly high, wounded and killed. Um, but yeah, we, we, uh, we learn a lot in first battles. And generally when a unit comes back for its second or third or fourth time in a battle, um, people tend to be a lot more cautious. The best quote on, uh, from the German side on the 18th of July, this is from the German Chancellor von Hertling. On the 18th of July, even the most optimistic among us knew it was all was lost. The history of the world was played out in three days, 15, 16, uh, 17, uh, July, 1918. Uh, why did the German offensive fail? Uh, a number of reasons. They had long, uh, a long line of supply. There was good supply lines laterally across the, uh, the salient they were pushing into. There were bad, uh, difficult uh, lines of supply to uh, resupply their forward troops. Um, Troops were hard. Troops, in, particularly in the German army, were in poor shape. The British naval blockade uh, of Germany had been very effective, had um, basically put the civilian population on starvation rations, the army not much better. So most of the German, even the best German units, were not particularly uh, well fed when they went into the campaign. And we see the very beginnings amongst the German army of people developing Spanish flu. So in some of those infantry companies in the German army, they were 50% effective because half the guys were down with flu for at least some of the period. But the other main reason for success is success is uh, the ability of Americans and, uh, and French soldiers to uh, take the offensive, work together, and uh, do the job. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.